All right. As my guest today, Dr. Rick Cromie said, uh, this is a good episode to release today in particular because it's Good Friday in the Christian faith. Um, and this was a really interesting, I thought, insightful, entertaining conversation about grace, authenticity, faith, and God. Um, as a way of background, so Dr. Rick is a theologian, cultural historian, leadership professor, and inspirational speaker. So obviously super knowledgeable about history, specifically the history of Christianity. And it just made it for a really rich like engaging discussion about Christianity and some of the key tenets of it and, and some of the key stories. Again, I found it really interesting and entertaining. Um, we started the conversation talking about grace because that was one of Rick's kind of core values. And I found this super intriguing because as, as Rick first explained it, in many ways, grace seems very illogical. The idea of forgiving someone or showing someone kind of deep love or grace when by all accounts, they don't actually deserve it. Or, you know, by all accounts, showing them that grace might actually make things worse. That, that seems kind of crazy. It's like, how, how can we be okay with that? But as we talked through it and Rick kind of gave the, the Christian perspective and his perspective, there started to be this underpinning of like, well, maybe there's actually a deep logic to it. So we kind of worked through that. And that ultimately led to a discussion about God and Adam and Eve and, and this really interesting question of, you know, is it possible that they actually made the right decision by biting the apple? And I recognize that sounds blasphemous, like quite literally. But what made this conversation so good was that Rick was totally open to exploring this, right? So we debated if, despite this utopia they lived in with God, right, if, if they actually had to learn about the truth of the world and what was actually out there and, and good and evil and what it was all really about. Um, so again, really deep topics, but really interesting. And it, it almost, I want to say like a lighthearted way, but, but at the same time, very deep and um, insightful. So, you know, as I always say, I think these conversations are, are super valuable. I know I feel better off for having had it and hearing Rick's views on grace, life, and God. So I hope you guys find a lot of value in it as well. So with that, let's get to the episode. All right, Rick, thanks so much for being on the show. Very, very much appreciated. Uh, let me get to the question of what's the value that's most important to you? You know, that's, that is a great question you know what is what is the most important value because uh you know as i, I was contemplating that uh in advance of this uh, conversation and there were so many different things for me uh my faith plays a big part that's a big value of who i am but when i break that down because i it's it's that's faith is such a big word and it's ambiguous and all that when i break it down i, I think there are two things that emerge one is a value upon grace. Uh, as a as a Christian, uh, the the aspect of grace is distinctive to the the Christian religion, and then probably more importantly, the what that produces in me, I believe, is authenticity. So, what do I value more than anything? Is probably just being authentic uh, mm. uh, in my approach with God, in my approach with man, and it just goes from there. Mm. Just to hit that grace piece for a second, because I think that's interesting. As you said, it kind of enables the authenticity. How would you define grace? How would you explain that to someone? Well, I'm a I'm a theologian as well as a historian and trained trained in theology. And so when you think about grace, at least from the Christian theological uh, scheme of things, it's an unconditional surprise. It's a it's a blessing. It's 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 really there. There, there are no strings attached to it. Um, but to me, it's something deeper. I, I you know, I, I like to use metaphors when I explain things. And, you know, there's a difference between mercy and grace. We all want to have mercy. And mercy is basically allowing your yourself to, to have your past be eliminated, you know, have whatever you've done. You know, I, let's say you get stopped for speeding, right? 
you know, and, 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 and you're, you, you know, you're guilty, you know, you've blown it, you know, that you've, you're, you're, you should get the, the big ticket on it, but the officer gives you mercy. He lets you off. Grace is something even bigger than that. Grace is where he hands you a golden ticket at that point says, listen, it looks like you have a propensity to speed in your life. This ticket will let you get off of any ticket in the future as well. That's grace. And that's what's distinctive about Christianity. Uh, and one of the reasons I'm so attracted and, and embrace Christianity is because every other religion I looked at was about man trying to get right with God. It was about me just trying to get God to, to get rid of my ticket, you know, to make me feel better about myself. But in Christianity, there's a true freedom that allows me to make a mistake, that allows me to live with my flaws, that allows me to have my faults and my, my mess ups and really my messiness. And, you know, not to be overly simplistic here, but, you know, when you start to look at Jesus as a Messiah in your life, you know, that Messiah is because you are a mess. And if you're a mess, you need a Messiah to, to help you through that. So that's, I, I love that analogy, that metaphor, because I think my, my visceral reaction, and I imagine many, and, and maybe you've even grappled with it is like, oh, we can't do that though, because then that person's going to keep speeding and they're going to hurt somebody and they're never going to take responsibility and accountability. And I'm sure you've thought about that, but what's, what's the kind of response to that? Well, here's, here's the thing about that. Once you have experienced that type of liberating grace in your life, which is, again, deeper than mercy, it produces an affection and appreciation for, for God and for Jesus, in my case. And, you know, so consequently, you know, it's like my relationship I had with my grandmother. You know, my, my grandmother always, you know, I had some friends in high school, and I remember one conversation we had where one of my friends was saying, let's go out and let's go out and party and maybe get drunk and let's have some fun. And, uh, you know, um, one of my friends said, well, if I, if I do that, I, if I go home, my dad's going to, going to kill me. Mm -hmm. If I go home and do that, you know, if I come home drunk, my dad's going to kill me. And I got thinking about my relationship with my grandmother, which was much different. Um, I realized that if I came home drunk, it would actually kill my grandmother. Mm. And I thought that's also the difference here. You know, in the Christian story, God actually is killed for man. That's Jesus on the cross. That's the story of Easter. Uh, that's the, the whole point of Good Friday. That's why it's called a Good Friday in, in the Christian story. It's because of it was a Good Friday mm -hmm. uh, uh, for, the, for the Christian story because it was about, you know, God saying enough. And in the words of Jesus, he says, it's finished. You don't have to strive anymore. You don't have to keep doing all this stuff to be good anymore. I'm doing it for you. You obviously can't get it done on your own. I'm going to do it for you. And I love that. And what it produces in me is an affection and an appreciation for Christianity. Uh, but more than anything, it, it creates a, a, a love affair, if you will, with, with my God and with Jesus that is like, I don't want to mess up. I don't want to make mistakes. I want to live better. I want to be a better person. I can, I know how to be a bitter person. I know how to be a bitter person. I could be a bitter person. I've had enough, you know, issues in my life and enough woundings in my life to be an extremely bitter person. But um, through my Christianity, I find that I can become a better person and it has made me a better person. And that's probably the greatest apologetic for it. You mm. know, a lot of people say, how can you prove that this all, all this stuff is true? And I guess it comes down for me that, you know, um, I've tried all the other stuff and none of it worked. 
Mm. Uh, but with Christianity, I found freedom. I found true liberty and I found grace and I found uh, authentic love and I found myself. Mm. So if, if we look at this, I'll use the word logically, that might not be the right word, but just trying to dig into it a little bit. I get completely what you're saying in terms of that. If you give that grace in that instance in the speeding ticket, that that reaction that you'll get will be one where somebody appreciates that and then wants to do better, wants to be better. And it's kind of enabled that. And I, and I think there's a lot of beauty and a lot of truth to that. But at the same time, at least my skeptical, maybe cynical mind looks at it and says, there's a bit of a bet place there, which is the nature of faith. But there's a bet place there that I think has an implicit assumption that we can trust humanity and humans at scale, that when you give them that grace, they will kind of take that path of love and, and realizing that there's a, a path to be better and to appreciate that not the more cynical view that people will look to exploit and take advantage of that. And as a historian, right, obviously, I know you've seen instances throughout history where it looks like people have taken that opportunity to exploit. How do you think about that? How, is, is that just part of the deal? Like we have to accept that happens sometimes? Is it something broke bad there and it wasn't actually true grace and that's why it didn't work? Like, how do you, how do you think about that piece? Well, to be perfectly authentic with you and real yeah. with you, that's my story. Mm. You know, that's me. I, I'm, I'm, you know, the apostle Paul uh, is, is interesting to me because he says he was actually the chief sinner. He says, nobody sinned more than me. Hmm. And I'm going, you haven't met Rick Cromie yet. <laughs> I, 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 often, I feel like I'm the chief sinner. And one of the things that Paul says, and he wrote it to, uh, he wrote it in a couple places, but in general, he wrote that uh, he wrote to the Romans in, in chapter six of, of the book of Romans. He says, stop sinning, stop you know, why do you keep doing these things? Why do you keep, why do you keep um, doing this so that grace may abound? And, and part of that was because even very early in Christianity, historically, uh, there was this idea, well, if this grace is so good, if God is just going to give us all this grace, then my goodness, let's just go ahead and sin all we want. And Paul says, absolutely not. You know, this grace is, and this, this grace is, is what drives you to God, not away from God. Your sin is what separates you god but what drives you to god is is he's created this bridge of grace which it covers everything for you but it's it's supposed to draw you closer to him and i find that's true in my own life you know i you know, I, I i mess up all the time but in the process of those messes again and those mistakes and the sin and that's what the word sin is a lot of people get hung up on this word sin by the way you know this it's it's basically a very theological word that means missing the mark hmm. you know and that can happen very easily. I know a lot of people say, well, I'm a good person. I'm going, yeah. But the problem is we all miss the mark. If you think about a target and you have to hit that target every single time you shoot that arrow, every time you miss the, the, the center, you're off mark. You know, and that's very easily do. And you can be close, but no cigar. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it is. And Chris, the, the Christian story is, is that all have messed up, all have fallen short of, of God's perfection. And we need somebody to step in there and fill that gap. Hmm. And that's what Jesus does. And so we rely upon him and that grace. But you're right. Historically, there have been a lot of people that have taken advantage of grace. They've abused grace. And, you know, the, the, the short answer to that is, well, that's part of what grace is. Grace is illogical it's messy. It doesn't make any sense at all. It, it is uh, a curiosity. Everything you just asked about, that's, that's grace. Um, and that's why a lot of Christians fall back into legalism when you think about it. 
Mm. Uh, or even just, um, you know, because it's easy. Legalism is just nothing more than, hey, this is what I, these are the laws, these are the commandments, and I just do these, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls with that do, you know, all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I lived that life. I was probably one of the most legalistic Christians for, for years, decades, but it, it didn't get rid of my demons. Mm. That type of legalism made me feel good for a moment, but it didn't sab the real hole in my soul. Only grace can do that. And it's an acceptance that, you know what? Yeah, I'm a mess. <laughs> yes. It doesn't make, a, I'm, not, I'm not a mistake, but I make mistakes. There's a difference there. I'm not a mistake personally. God doesn't make mistakes, but I, I make mistakes all the time. I, I miss the mark as far as being perfect uh, and, and, and trying to hit that that area of perfection for God. And can, can I ask Rick on, on that point? Because, and I'm going to project on you a little bit just to get your sense and, and tell me your answer. Mm -hmm. But like, as you explain grace, right? It's, 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 it's exactly that, right? You don't know for sure. You hope, right? It's, it's, it's all those things. You can't explain it. It's illogical is the word you used, right? Mm -hmm. My mind, I like to think is so logical. And I don't say that as a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the nature of it. Mine too. For, so for you, it's beautiful. So for you yourself, like, how do you, and I ask this completely authentically and genuinely, I'm not implying it's good or bad. How do you come to grips with that? How do you on a day-by-day -day basis accept the fact that I'm going to have to make irrational decisions and believe in it and go with it authentically? Because that that's so hard for me in so many ways. Well, first of all, it, it suggests that it's irrational. Grace is um, messy. Uh, it is at times illogical. It doesn't make sense when you when you put one plus one should equal two. I, you know, it's interesting in John chapter eight, there's a story about a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And it's a very interesting story uh, as far as the, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ, because John is the only one that tells this story. And it's a scandalous story. Basically, a, a woman who is caught in the act is brought to Jesus and uh, the, the legal minds, the lawyers and everyone else, they were doing exactly what you're supposed to do. You brought a person who had basically openly sinned in the camp. You brought them before the rabbi. And the rabbi is supposed to you know, hear it. He's the judge. He's the jury. He's, he's the execution, everything. And you know, they bring this woman who was caught in the act. So it's not like she's been rumored here. She was actually in the act. And by the way, a lot of times women will say, well, where's the man here? Yeah. Un understanding Mishra and, and the, the Midrash and the, the law at that time, by the time of Jesus, you always, the, the woman, if there was a couple that was accused, the woman was always judged first. The man was judged later. Hmm. So they were just bringing the woman first, which was perfectly natural. The man, his, his day on court was coming. But this woman she comes to Jesus and, you know, they've got their stones all ready to, to stone her. And they're trying to trap Jesus into making a, a huge mistake here as far as what he, what he was believing, what he was teaching. You don't want to go against the law of Moses. You know, the law is the law. And so Jesus basically turns it around. He, he writes in the dirt, you know, starts out by writing the dirt, you know, and we don't know what he wrote, but I suspect what he wrote, what most scholars think he wrote is something related to the law, because that's what a rabbi would do. They would, they would write, well, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. There you go. That's the charge. At that point, all the, all the, 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 the priests and the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they all got, Hey, let's, let's go. All right, let's go. And then he does something weird. He, he, he gets back down in the dirt and he starts writing something else. And 
John just basically says at that point, they dropped their rocks, oldest to youngest, and left. And the question has always been, what did he write the second time that caused this incredible response? And we don't know. I mean, there are all sorts of different suspicions. I think, this is, this is my chromium interpretation here, I think he wrote the names of their sexual lusts and, and life and, and, and maybe even some of their actual affairs that they were engaging in. Because he says, if you're without if you're without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Well, the Greek there actually says, if you're without this sin. Mm. And Jesus is already teaching that if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. It's pretty high standard with God. So let's um let's be um, let's be fair here. And I think when Jesus got down in the dirt, he, he just wrote, um, oh, let's let's mention this one. Let's go with Joanne here, Joanna. And then he looks up at the old Pharisee named Harry up there and he says, he doesn't have to say a word. He just he just points to the dirt. Mm. And Harry goes, how do you know about that? Mm. I can't cast a stone here because he knows who I am and what I've done. Mm. You know, and, and, and I think and here's what's amazing about that. And this is where the grace comes in. Mm. The law of Moses was written in stone. Clear. It was easy to know. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not you know, have graven images, all that stuff. You know, honor your mother and your father, all those things. But Jesus was writing here in dirt, and all he had to do at that point was when, when there was no one else around, the woman was there, probably sobbing. She was probably naked because uh, they dragged her probably right out of bed, and um, he looks at her and says, where are your accusers? Mm. And she looks around. She says, there's no one. And I think at that point, Jesus just goes down and he wipes the dirt clean. There's nothing there in the dirt anymore, mm. and he says, neither do I accuse you. Now, this is where... It's not just not having an allowance then to go out and commit adultery again, because he says to her, go and sin no more. Mm. Go and don't do this anymore. Mm. I'm freeing you. But that's grace. So it's totally illogical. It totally goes against the, the legalism of, of what we like to capture religion as being. And, you know, for, for me, I just find that type of a story an example. And by the way, it's such a radical, scandalous story that uh, if you look in the Bible, a lot of your translations will say it doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts. Mm. And that's because the earliest manuscripts took this story. We do have some copies of early manuscripts, and they put it at the back of the yeah, book like, of What John. do we do with this? We can't. Or they whitewashed it out. There's one manuscript that literally, it's blank. It, mm. it, 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 it ends chapter 7 and goes down to, uh, I think, verse 12 of John chapter 8. There's just a blank there. And in others, they even put it at the back of a different gospel. They don't want to deal with this story because Jesus is saying, I'm bringing you a new ethic. Mm. You have lived by the law and it's gotten you nothing but death. Mm. That's what you want. You become a death culture. It's so to live by a new right? ethic. It's such a good story, right? And, and I get it, right? For those listening, some people, if you have different faith or think of it differently, right. and that's fine. Like, let's just take the story for what it is. I think so. So in so many ways, like, we, so the thread that started that the question was, how do you deal with something that's irrational or illogical? And I think in many ways, the way I interpret that story, which I think you do too, is like, it's not illogical. It's, it's a different logic, maybe a deeper logic, maybe. A, so I often talk about it like this, right? Logical mind. I think about the actions, the things we do as mathematical calculations in our brain. And I would say oftentimes myself, I think other people too, we run like a very basic, basic arithmetic calculation, right? Very simple. And that's almost that legalistic approach, right? It's very simple. It's in stone. You do this, you do that. 
in that scenario, it's almost like Jesus came in and said, no, no, I'm running PhD level, you know, masterclass calculus calculations of this and looking at it at a much deeper level. So in some ways, the answer is it's not illogical. There's a deep logic to it. And I think in a lot of ways, that makes a lot of sense. Where it leads me, though, if I continue down the thread, and I'm, I'm really curious you're taking this, is when, when Jesus says that, we can't know, right? Obviously not speaking for Jesus, but when Jesus says, go sin no more, that's an interesting phrase because in some ways it seems like there's almost an acceptance, as you've said, that like we're always going to sin. We're not perfect. We're going to sin continuously. How do you he reconcile you. that phrase? Is it, is, it, is it don't make that sin again? Is it do your best to not sin even though you might? Or is it literally, hey, you've gotten this grace now you should know not to make this mistake again, not to make any mistake again. Well, scripture also says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. So I think the, the target is perfection. Okay. But we can't be perfect. We can't always hit the mark. We are, we're never going to be absolutely on point with our, with our life, with our choices, with our morality, with our, with our, you know, Christianity or religion, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, it, and, and if you're not a Christian, obviously, you know, you, you understand this. I mean, that's part of, of doing all the other little things you do religiously is to try to appease the gods. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, what's, what's interesting is, is that but, but fills in the gap between, and sometimes that gap is a great gap. I mean, if you greatly sinned, you've got a great gap there, is, is this thing called grace. And it's just about embracing that and going, wow, this is what makes it different. And I got to tell you, again, I see a spiritual battle here at play. And for many of your listeners, this may be hard to understand, but, you know, Paul talks about a spiritual battle between the forces of evil and, 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 and the, um, the, and the, the good, if you will, and between God. And, and sometimes we capitalize it as, you know, the devil versus God and, you know, Okay. But I think that's what the devil would like to do most in our lives is is persuade us towards this idea that we can just be good on our own merit. Mm. Just be a good person. You're going to be okay. Mm. You'll you'll be all right. You're good. But I I always remind people, you can't spell the word good without God. Mm. I mean, it's there. If you look at it, you can't spell the word good without God. And that's, that's, I think, part of the problem here is that it's very easy as a culture to think, well, if I can be good enough, well, that's religion. Religion is good enough. And the problem is we can't be good enough. We're going to miss. If you miss the mark one time, you're, you're, you're outside. It's over. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny because I, I've said this before on the show. I was raised Catholic. I, I, where I sit today at 39 years old, 38 years old, um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm still grappling with the concept of God and all that, which I think many people are, right? But I think what you're getting at at its core, right? And, and none of us, or most of us don't, or maybe, I don't know, some of us know for sure, some of us don't. But that, that point you're making, and, and I say this, I don't mean it to sound negative, like there's a very functional purpose, exactly as you're saying, to God, religion, spirituality, faith. Because the way I often say it is, I don't trust my own mind, which I think is very much in line with your saying. We, we are imperfect. We are flawed. We are not, for lack of a better phrase, we're not good enough on our own. naturally in our natural state and for many people that's god you need god that's what draws you there for others maybe it's the universe maybe it's other things but it's this realization that i should not just assume i am good enough on my own and that's a tough thing to say today and i recognize that because there is this sense of like no we're all good enough just as we are and i actually think that's true too in a weird way and i struggle to reconcile that but just kind of i know it's a lot there but curious your take on that well philosophically we are again good. We, we have the potential to be good people. 
because, and again, within the Judeo-Christian, even the Islamic theology, God created the world and he created man in his own image. So we, you know, if you're, if you come at it from a, from a Jewish perspective or a Christian perspective, or even an Islamic perspective, you've got this idea that you're created in the image of God. And it, it actually says in Genesis that, that what God, when he looked at, at man, he said, it wasn't just good. It was very good. Mm. I mean, it was like, he looked at man and went, I did it. I finally did it. You know, I, I made the aardvark. Yeah, it was okay. You know, I, I made the, I made the elephant yeah, you know, too long of a trunk, you know, the graph got a bit long on the neck, but those are okay. They, they were good, but man, my goodness, man, he's, he's very good. And the problem is, is not that we're not created good. The problem is, is that we can't be good in the end. You know, we, 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 we can't, we can't be good. And part of that, if you understand Again, Paul writes in Romans, he kind of lays this out better than anybody, the theological background. He takes it all the way back to Adam and Eve, you know, uh, and I happen to believe Adam and Eve were historical figures. I have to because Jesus himself referred to Adam and Eve as historical figures, and, and that would make him a lunatic. And that really, when you think about who Jesus is, and I know that there are some in your audience that probably don't even believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that's fine. Um, C.S. Lewis the great philosopher, Christian philosopher. Actually, he was an, an atheist to begin with, and he came to Christ, became a Christian as a result of, of looking at Christianity. He said, you only have three choices when it comes to, to this perspective of who Jesus is. He's either a liar. He was just a, delu he, was, he was a liar. He just flat out lied about who he was and what he was doing, or he's crazy. He's a lunatic. He's a liar or a lunatic, or he's actually Lord. And you have to, you have to come to that determination, you know, as far as where you're going to be with Jesus. I have just found that um, through seeing him as Lord of my life and giving him lordship value in my life, that there's liberty in that, um, in that story mm. and in, in my story. Mm. Um, but that, I, again, I keep coming back to grace. I, I can't be good. I messed up yesterday. Mm. You know, I'm, I, I, I actually, I got to be honest. I am perfect right now today. Today has been perfect uh, for Fairly. the most part. I, I can't think of a single thing I've done wrong. I've missed the mark with God, knowing, knowing what he wants in my life, you know, but there's going to come a moment today where something's going to happen because I'm human. And that's, again, the Christian story. If, if you're just trying to figure out and understand this Christian story, it's about God saying, you know what, I've got to go down there and help them and show them how to be human. I think theologically, that was the reason why Jesus came. Yes, he came to build a bridge to God and to, you know, save man from sin and all those big Sunday school types of ideas we have about Jesus. But I think the big picture for who Jesus is, is he came to show us how to live and how to be human. He said it himself, I've come to give you life and life abundant, but you have to believe in me to get there because I am the way, the truth, and the life. John I've asked this question before on the show, and, and I'm curious your take on it. And, and in some ways, it, it's, it's a very easy question to just kind of, yeah, yeah, that's what we can kind of move right past that. But, but I want to try and get deep into it. What, why do you think God, we don't know, right? We can never know why God's done what he's done if, if God does exist. But why do you think God created us in a way where we are capable of making those mistakes, or maybe said another way, where 
he had to send Jesus down to show us how to live, right? And, and I say that again, the, the very, I think, quick response is like, well, free will. That's God wanted to give us free will to do that. But let's go beyond that. Like, why? If, if God has a view of how we should live and God is all powerful, why not just snap your fingers and, and make us that if that is the better way to be? And, and I, what I've heard other people say, which I think there's validity to, is like, well, because then it wouldn't mean anything. It wouldn't have any substance to it. You wouldn't actually appreciate it. But again, if God's all powerful, I would think, I would think, and I ask this with all due respect, that God could address that and make it so where it doesn't have to be this kind of messy process we're going through to get to a place he seems to want us to get to. Like, why make us go through all of that? Obviously, you're giving your best sense based on your studies and all that. But what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, you're, 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 that's a, that's a deep dive in there. And, you know, I think, I think in coming back in a very simplistic way, Obviously, he created, I believe, with free will. Um, he didn't create robots. Uh, he could have. I mean, that would have been the easiest thing to do. But again, I come back to that, that initial Genesis creation account of man, where we are created in the image of God. God himself is not a robot. God himself has free will. He can choose to do what he wants. He can save who he wants. He can, you know, do it. You know, the classic idea is that, well, and I want to kind of turn the corner here on, uh, you know, I was talking with someone just yesterday about this. They were really struggling with this idea of how could a loving God send somebody to hell? Sure. And I go, well, yeah, okay, well, that's, that, that's understandable. But here's the thing. If you understand the Christian story, if you really understand humanity, God doesn't send anybody to hell. We send ourselves. We create a hell, first of all, here on earth, and then we just literally show up and he says, hey, listen, this is what you wanted. This was the life you built, you know? Um, but on the other hand, I think there's, there's a potential for us, and this is really also the Christian story, is that we can create a heaven on earth as well. Kingdom of God on earth is, is is an attempt, at least by Christians, and it's it's why I do choose a higher ethic. You know, I I, I get beyond those things that you know I, I get beyond the profanity, the perversity, the, the 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 stuff of our age, and you know we 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 we're told uh, and and taught to rise above those things and to live above those things. That's not easy, mm -hmm. but the simple answer to me is that well, we're created with free will. And, and because we're, you know, we're, we're a reflection of who God is himself. Does that imply, and again, I say this with complete sensitivity and all due respect, yeah. just following the thread, that God himself is, can be flawed in some ways, right? If, if we are the image and we have free will and we can make mistakes, we can miss the mark. Does that imply that the reason God did that is because that's God as well? God may get things wrong. Because that's, I think, at least my very basic view of, of Christianity and God is like, no, no, no God's perfect. Like, if there is anything that's perfect, it is God. And that's where I think some people struggle because they say like, well, again, all powerful, perfect being, but yet created us in a way where we have to suffer. I think that's where some people struggle with it. And I'm not saying there's not a good answer. There's not an explanation. And again, maybe I'm misreading it, but is that right? Like, if you follow that logic, does that imply that God can make mistakes as well? Well, I, no, I mean, God is perfect. Okay. God is life. God is about relationship. I think it's interesting, it, you know, if following your logic and what you're talking about here, the issue is we've forgotten the, uh, the the event that created this whole mess. And again, a lot of people look at Adam and Eve as being some sort of metaphorical story. I I actually know in in some uh, some theological classrooms they're they're taught that and and I, I I've been taught at times 
you know, Adam and Eve didn't really exist. They were just, you know, um, kind of a symbolism or a metaphor for, for people. And I actually believe that they were historical again, based upon Jesus himself referring to Adam and Eve as being historical individuals and Noah as well. Noah is in those first few chapters of Genesis, uh, Genesis six, seven, and eight, nine. Um, so there's, there's references to him. <sighs> historically what happens and if you look at it historically man is created perfect mm -hmm. he's created absolutely perfect he's not even going to die he's going to live forever and yet what happens is god says hey listen there are all these things all these wonderful things i've created here this entire world is is built for you and i'm going to walk with you genesis says that god actually walked with them in the garden you know, he was, he had a relationship with them in the garden, but he said, there's one thing I, I ask that you not do. And this is where his free will comes in. He, wa he wanted to give them to the freedom to choose him or to choose death. There was a, was one tree in the garden. All the trees were giving fruit and wonderful fruit, but there was one tree. Actually, there were two trees. One, one was the tree of life, the tree of life. The other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was, and it's kind of a strange name. It was a name that was given to it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And essentially, you could argue that before they ate of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they had no knowledge of evil. They didn't even know what the evil was. Mm -hmm. They had never experienced evil. They didn't know what, what sin was. They, but see, that's the first time a human being, by a choice, missed the mark. And what happened by them eating of that the, the consequence was death. And it wasn't physical death because they lived beyond that point. They, they and I don't think it was an apple. The, the, you know, I'm, I'm actually a banana guy myself. So if I'm going to call an, a fruit on that tree, I'm going to say it probably was more like an, a banana. But, you know, we, we've commonly called that the apple. But, yeah. you know, before they bit into that fruit, whatever it was, you know, they, they weren't going to die. They were perfect. Uh, you know, they, they were in relationship with God. And then they bit in this, and don't forget the serpent, the devil was there in that tree, basically saying, ah, it's not true. If you eat of this thing, you're not going to, it's, it's, it's just, you know, you're just going to know good and evil. Don't you want to know the difference between good and evil? You can see how he would lie about that, but the penalty was still death. What type of death? It was spiritual death, not physical death. Because when you die spiritually, physically, you end as well. Your, your physical body cannot keep up with, with spiritual death. So your body, if, if your spirit's dead, then your body will, will follow very shortly after that in, in, in time, due time. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve. They you know died spiritually. About that, I, I don't yeah. know that I thought of it this way before, but it's almost like right along with what we're talking about, as you're saying, and, and correct me if I'm saying anything that's wrong, but like in some ways, God, in, 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 this, in this story, right, God created us perfect, not Robots might be too harsh for a term, but we, we had that utopia that was all good. Everything was going to be and good. And we had freedom of choice. Well, right. We could choose. We, yeah, could, we choose. could choose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But in a weird way, right, like the, the, the connotation that I've always thought of it is, is that we, we made a mistake. We humans made a mistake by, by listening to that serpent, by biting that apple. And there's obviously a strong case to be made for that. But in some ways, isn't it very similar to this whole idea like, not to make it a silly analogy, but like the matrix or these other concepts where it's like, you could take, you could take either approach. You can, you can have complete goodness 
but it's you, you don't have that true freedom. You don't actually see the whole thing. You just have this small view of it, but life's going to be great. Or would you rather risk that, sacrifice it so you can actually have the truth of the situation? And when you look at it through that lens, it almost seems like in a weird way they made the right decision, which I know maybe is almost blasphemous, literally to say, but in the spirit of free will, isn't that, didn't they have to bite that apple? Because otherwise they would have never really known what life was. And this is where you can go back and we can speculate and, 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 and think about it to the end of, end of days, if you will. Um, you know, the, the what ifs. You know, sure. what if they had not buy, been in that? All we know is that when we look at the when we look at their lives before they bit into the apple, they had perfection. They they had relationship with God. They they, they weren't going to die. There was mm. there was a promise of eternal life, and, and 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 I think that's because spiritually they were created to be alive. Mm. But when they bit into the apple, you know, they became aware of their of their of the knowledge of good and evil they became aware that they had missed the mark it's one of the reasons why they immediately start cover themselves up they realize that they're naked they don't even realize they're naked at this point that it's such an innocent thing and so they they cover themselves up with fig leaves to to do that and it's interesting to me why they would choose that that the fig leaves are and eventually god comes along and says where are you and which i think is the greatest theological question in, in scripture it actually emerges in this story. God comes into the garden looking for Adam and Eve, and he asks the question, where are you? Hmm. What a great philosophical, hmm. theological question. Where are you? Hmm. And they're over in the bushes hiding out, you know, covering up their nakedness with fig leaves because they've never experienced shame before. Hmm. They've never experienced guilt before. And suddenly in the, in the, in the con when they confronted a perfect holy God, and they saw everything that was imperfect about themselves. And at that point, it's interesting, God removes the fig leaves and puts on animal skins on them. I don't know if you remember this part of the story. And I think that's that's interesting because what he's going to do eventually is he's going to create a sacrificial system uh, for the Jewish people. That was around when, in Jesus' day that they would sacrifice animals to roll back sins it wouldn't eliminate sin. It would just roll them back. It was it was a way of you know putting a you know they had a whole thing called the scapegoat uh, uh, ceremony where they the priest would put his his hands on on a goat and he would confess all the sins of Israel. Once a year they would slap that goat and that goat would go running out into the hills. He was known as a scapegoat because he had all the sins of the people, but the sin was still there. It was never eliminated. And this, this again, is, is the, Jesus becomes the ultimate scapegoat. Mm. Eventually, in the end, God becomes the priest who puts all the sin of the people on Jesus' head at the cross. Mm. And then he says, it is finished. Mm. Game over. Mm. From this point forward, there's a new thing in town. From this point forward, it's not the blood of, of bulls and goats and doves and all these other things that's going to assuage you of your sins sap you of your guilt it's going to be jesus christ he's going to stand in that place his blood is is is, is all you need god is enough at this point god himself is enough and so yeah it comes back it all it's it's a huge story it's interesting that in the end of the story the book of revelation talks about how the tree of life is there again but this tree of the knowledge of good and evil it's gone it no longer exists yeah it's, i mean it makes me think about 
raising a child. So I have an eight-year-old son and, and mm-hmm. a question, a philosophical question that often comes up as a parent is if you could ensure that they had a great life in many ways, like the life in the garden, right? If you could ensure yeah. that, um, would, would you take that or would you allow them to experience life on their own and kind of figure it out? And that's where I say it's interesting. And again, I'm not passing a value judgment here, but I think a lot of people would say like, as much as I want to protect my child and make sure they have a good life, I'd rather they be able to kind of experience it and figure it out on their own because that'll be a much richer and deeper life. And when you parallel that to the story of Adam and Eve, it, it's an interesting twist on it to say maybe maybe in some ways, again, if God is all powerful, somebody could ask the obvious question, why even put that tree there? Why even do it? And maybe in some ways, we don't know, maybe God had that same parent-like view, which is like, I could keep you here. I could, and it would be amazing. And in some ways, I want you here. I want you to come back here but I need to let you go do it yourself and figure it out. And you know, that there's a lot of logic to that, not to use that phrase, but I, I get Terry, that. Terry, you're a theologian. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. I mean, that that's, and that's what theologians do. We sit around and we talk about these things and, and it, it is messy at times. Even theology itself, like grace is very messy. Well, take and, it though, Rick, you know, what's, what's, sorry to cut you off, but what's interesting is in that same parallel, it makes me wonder, right? So, so, God forbid, I'll use that term because it's just in me, but I have a son, right? <laughs> if things started getting really bad for my son in whatever way, a health issue, God forbid, or whatever it might be, my inclination would be to say, if I had that power to intervene again and fix it, I would do it. And I think that's where a lot of people struggle with God. And again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but yes, allow your child, your children to do whatever they want. But if you see it's going wrong, wouldn't we all jump in and fix it for them and help them? And that's where I think people struggle with God is like, why isn't God fixing this? Why is God allowing us? I understand ah, they wanted us to experience, but. But you've just missed the story. Yeah. You missed the story. God already did. He, If you read the Old Testament, it's all about the people of Israel trying to stay right with God, but they can't do it. They're, they're, they're chasing and that's Jesus. idols and they're just, they're just going astray. And, you know, by the end, even in the book of Jeremiah, they are so unfaithful that God actually writes a, a divorce decree. He says, I'm divorcing you guys. I don't even want to be in relationship with you anymore. You are so unfaithful to me. Hmm. The book of Hosea, which is an Old Testament prophet, you know, Hosea, to show how bad Israel had become, is told to go out and marry a prostitute. Hmm. You know, go marry, go marry a whore, and I want you to love that whore like like I love you, hmm. and I want you to stay faithful to this person, even though she's going to go out every night and give herself away to men, man after man after man, because that's exactly what Israel is doing to me right now. So here's the thing, Terry. I hear this all the time from people who say, why doesn't God come in and fix it? The answer is, he did fix it. That's what Jesus is all about. That's what Easter is all about. That's what the cross is all about. He has fixed it. You want to live a life above the world, you choose Christianity. You want to live a a life where you chase religion to kind of salve your guilt and appease your, your conscience from time to time, go ahead and choose every other type of religion. Christianity will actually liberate you when you come to grips understanding it. Too many people today, and and you said you mentioned you came up came up Roman Catholic. I I I grew up in a very staunch religious um, church, uh, evangelical church, you might say, fundamental type of church, and I just grew up very legalistic. 
And even in my my theological studies, when I chose to become a pastor and a, and and a, and and study at a higher level these 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 concepts, I had this legalism that I had to just keep doing the right thing. If if I didn't read enough Bible every day, if I didn't pray hard enough every day, if I didn't if I didn't go to church every Sunday, that that God would would literally you know he would come down on me. You know he would he would he would hurt me. He would. Uh, he would separate from me. I always felt like God had this handout with me, you know? And what I discovered, it took me about five decades of my life to figure this out, but I was around my 50th birthday, about 10 years ago now, that I finally realized what grace was. Mm. And I had talked about grace. And the problem is, is that we have a lot of churchianity today, but not Christianity. And that's why I talk about, you ask what my value is, my value come back to being authentic. You may not agree with my message. You may not agree with my beliefs. That's okay. I hope you just see a real person here who's mm -hmm. trying to just authentically live life. And I'm going to try to be as good as possible, not because it's going to get me any credit with you or with God, but because God has called me to be a good person. And I want to live a life of love. I want to live a life of, of peace. I want to live a life of of, of patience. I want to live a life of self-control. Mm. I don't allow, I, I, yeah, and I still, I still mess up in all of those. There are times when I am not loving. There are times when I'm not patient. There are times when I lose my self-control. That's where grace comes in. Mm. And I just fall back on that going, you know what, God, thank you for that. And all I can say in the end, and we can go further where you want to go. All I can say in the end, Terry, is this, is that when I look back on my life, I see it progressively getting better. I have become a better person. I'm a better person today than I was 10 years ago, but I'm a better person 10 years ago than I was 10 years before that. Mm. Every day of my life, I've gotten better. You see, my story is that I was abandoned as a child. I was abused by my father. My mom left me. She was a drug addict and alcoholic. And I lived for years with hate in my heart, mm. hate towards my parents anger for what they had done to me, wounded by this thing. And then I became, um, you know, I chased all sorts of different types of things to salve that, that pain in my life. And I became addicted to some of those things. And in the end, I realized that none of that was filling the hole. You know, if you got a bottomless hole, you know, Blase Pasquale calls it the God-shaped hole that we all have in, inside her. You can fill that hole with, with just about any type of substance. But there's only one, there's only one who can truly fill it. And that is the authentic God. You know, there are all sorts of gods out there, but there is one God that is true. Hmm. And he showed himself. He did fix it. He did, did he, fix it. Do you, I'm going to ask a question, Rick, which yeah. if you're comfortable answering, if you're not, and I hope you understand yeah. by this point in the conversation, it's, it's just because I, I want to learn, right? In the spirit of grace, have, have you been able to show that even just if in spirit and thought towards your parents? Like, have you reconciled that? Like, have you have you given them that grace to say the horrible things that I can only imagine have been done? Has that carried over in that way? And again, I don't ask that to be like, oh, are you really? Glad you asked. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you asked, because when I turned 50 and I realized my life was a mess and my marriage was a mess, I've been married for 30 years. And at that point, my wife walked out on me and six months later, I was divorced. Mm. So a 30 year marriage went away just like that. And when I went to church, I felt judged. 
there were some Christians that judged me because I was now divorced. Obviously I could, you know, I'm a Christian leader. I'm a pastor and I can't keep my own marriage together. What's wrong with you. Hmm. But the, what they don't know is that I did everything I could to try to reconcile that relationship. She had free choice as well. And she chose not to come back to me. All right. That was her choice. Um, but in that moment, I also started to deal with other issues in my life. And for one, it was that long, long hatred and anger towards my parents. And I went through some recovery work. I actually did a, a couple 12-step recovery programs. Uh, one was, a, a it's called Celebrate Recovery. It's a Christian-based uh, recovery group that was very helpful to me. But I also did personal counseling. I did a number of things to, to start writing the ship. And that's, that's also when I started to really read scripture and see this element of grace. You know, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is writing again, and he talks about... Uh, a time when we, we think he, he probably was killed himself, maybe stoned at list. A lot of people think it was when he was stoned. He actually died. And he talks about how he was, he was caught up to a third heaven into the paradise of God. And the whole idea, the, the backstory is Paul died, went to heaven and basically came back to life. So he had, a, he had one of those uh, after death experiences. And when he came back, he said he was given a thorn in the flesh. Um, a, a thorn that was a messenger from Satan, basically, I think, to remind him of his humanity, to remind him that, hey, you can't get too proud in, your, in, in who you are, because this thorn is always going to be there to remind you. And Paul says, you know, I prayed three times for God to remove it. Well, I can tell you, I have a thorn in my own flesh that I've carried for decades, and I have prayed 3,000 times at least for God to remove it. Mm. But I get the same answer every single time. I get the answer that Paul got that day, and he wrote it right there in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, the answer was this, my grace is sufficient for you. Stop worrying about it. My grace is sufficient for you. So long story short, with my parents, I, I got to that part in my recovery work. And if you've ever done recovery, you, you know there's what we call the amendment, uh, the amends process, where you ask for forgiveness for things that you've done, and you actually forgive other people for the wrongs that they've done to you. And it's interesting, my dad and I had already kind of semi-reconciled, and he came, we, we had a kind of come to Jesus moment a few years earlier than that, and we started coming back, and that, that relationship kind of already was on the mend. But with my mother, I had told her back in my 20s that, you know, hey, I'm a pastor, I'm a I'm, I'm a Christian, you know that, and, and I, I, for a long time, I hate you. I just want you to know I don't hate you anymore, but here's the thing. You want me to tell you I love you, and I can't do that. Mom, I just can't tell you I love you because it's not there yet. Hmm. In fact, I told her at that point, you will probably die without me uttering the words that you want to hear from me. I hmm. love you. And that's part of the reason why I had a problem. For the next three decades, I kept that. That was my secret lockbox. I will not tell my mom that I love her. She hurt me so bad when I was 12. That's the one thing that, sir, I'm going to keep nailing it back into her life over and over and over again. Well, what happened was when I went through my recovery work, I had to got to this amends process and I got stuck. I got stuck because I had not opened this little box up. And when I opened the box up, I realized, wow, here we go. And so Mother's Day was approaching, and I called my mom on Mother's Day. I think this was 2014. I called her, and I said, Mom, I want to give you the gift that, that you've been kind of wanting for a long, long time. And it's not a gift that, that I can put into a box. 
In fact, if anything, it's a gift that I'm going to take out of a box today for you. I just want you to know, mom, that I forgive you for what happened. She couldn't forgive herself. I found out that we talked for an hour and a half. She, she about how she spent years not being able to forgive herself for what she did to us kids. I said, I forgive you. But here as well, I'm going to ask that you forgive me too. Hmm. I want to know that I love you. And for whatever time you have left on this earth, I want you to know that you will hear those words over and over and over again. And we both cried like babies. We both had that moment of, of reconciliation. And it was so important. In fact, it became so valuable in my life because a year and a half later, I think, yeah, about a year and a half later, she, um, she passed away. And the last words that I said to her and the last words that she said to me, I love you. And I got to tell you, it's not in the Bible, my friend. It's not there. We know God's, we know, we know Jesus on the cross. His last words, it, it was, it's finished. And I, into, my, into your hands, I commit my spirit. But I actually think without saying the words, Jesus said to the entire world on that day, I love you. Mm. I love you. And that's the Christ that I follow. That's the Christ that has revolutionized my life. Mm. it's reconciled my relationships. My dad and I, we just talked this week and we, we talked for my dad and I never talked. We spent literally years not talking to one another, Made a call on Christmas for about two minutes. Now we talk for an hour and a half about mm. just about everything. And we always end, he ends with saying, I love you, son. I said, dad, I love you too. Mm. You know, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you, Rick, as, as we're coming towards the end here, I, I love, I'm, I'm glad I asked that question too. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that story. And, I'll bring it back full circle in, in some ways to the grace point, because we were debating in the beginning, you know, grace is illogical. How do you do it? And I think that story in so many ways illustrates there actually is a deep logic in it, right? Your ability to show that grace for your mom, but also for yourself opened up and allowed you so much of a better life because of it. And, and again, just being totally authentic, right? That's the spirit of it. Some people might hear this and think I'm full of shit or whatever. As you're telling that story, there is a physical feeling in me that I feel as I kind of think about what it must have felt like for your mom to hear that. And it's, there's no words to describe it. It's, it's a beautiful sentiment. And, and I do believe this. It might sound kind of whatever people would say it sounds like, but putting that into the world, that feeling existing for your mom and me being able to kind of feel that a little bit, there's something to that. There is something yeah. to that. So whether you believe in God, Jesus, whatever religion you believe in or no religion at all, I'm a firm believer that the, the spirit of the grace that you're speaking of and what that allows for, what that brings in the world, there's nothing more logical to me than that, that if that feeling can be expanded and scaled, that's what yeah. we should be aiming for. So I, right. Rick, this was, this is a great conversation. I mean, I never know where they're going to go. I had a sense in this one, but um, to where you started, if it's authentic, it's valuable and meaningful and interesting to me. And to me, this was, was deeply that. So I appreciate it a ton. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. And, and in fact, I think that's the greatest compliment you can give as a human being mm. is when someone looks at you and says that you are so real, mm. you're just a real person. Mm. To me, that means that you have figured this out. And, and for me, you can't figure it out. You can't be really real until you come to grips with your faults, with your issues and that reality. And, and you stop, you stop playing the game. You stop yes. trying to cover it up. And that's what, again, Christianity became an answer for me. Yeah. I found in it a release of the chain. The ball and chain is gone, mm. and I am free. And it frees me to basically look at the world today, to look at you, my friend, and say, hey, I love you. 
and yeah. I'm going to live every single breath I have, every word I have. If I don't have to even say the words, mm -hmm. but I do. Mm -hmm. I love you. Beautifully said, Rick. Beautifully said. Again, I can't thank you enough for the conversation, sharing the things you shared, and just I hope for those listening, gives you something to think about to, to kind of process all this and think through it. So, Rick, um, thank you. I hope you have an awesome rest of the day. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hey, everybody out there listening, Terry, keep listening, Terry. Sounds like you got some good stuff on the line here. Hey, I appreciate that.